You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's episode, we have Harmon Carson, also known as the Bayou Bowhunter on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. He's an avid whitetail hunter based in Louisiana, where he chases after hard-to-hunt deer with a traditional bow, and has had quite a bit of success. He also self-films his hunts, has more recently started hunting out of a saddle, and takes annual trips out west for elk, bear, and mule deer. So what part of Louisiana, I guess, are you from, and what's the habitat like there? Every time I think of Louisiana, I just think of the big, you know, swamps that you see on like swamp people. Right. <laughs> it's so funny. It doesn't matter where I go. If anybody finds out like I'm, I'm from Louisiana, it's, oh, swamp people. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's a very, uh, South Louisiana is very much like that. Uh, I live in Northwest Louisiana. Uh, there's quite a few people that just call it Southern Arkansas, uh, where I'm at, but, <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm in Northwest Louisiana near, uh, outside of Shreveport and, uh, man, it's a, it's a pretty good mixture of habitat. It's, uh, hard, big hardwoods, uh, a lot of pine plantation and there are the, uh, there's quite a bit of swamp bottom, um, but it's not like widespread like what it is in south louisiana but there are very very large swamp bottoms that kind of hang close to the rivers and bayous and stuff uh, but it's overall it's super super thick um, i mean you have open hardwood bottoms and then some of the pine plantations are uh, the older more mature ones are are you know open but for the most part uh louisiana is a, is a very very thick state um tons of underbrush <clears throat> And is it kind of a mix of, of private and public land, or is it more one than the other? Oh, it's absolutely more uh, private land than, than public. Um, most most people around here, they have to have hunting leases um, to hunt on, you know, and it's little little blocks of property, which makes it makes it tough to do do a lot of the hunting that, you know, you see people talk about doing on shows or, on, uh, or magazines. It's like there is public land. Uh, but there's really not a lot of public land, and the public land that's there gets hammered. Gotcha. Yeah, that would be hard for me because, I mean, at this point, for me, when I try and look for new land, I like to look for, you know, the more acreage, the better. If it's, like, not at least 3,000 acres, it's almost like it's not even big enough, you know? So it's, like, right. the small parcel stuff, that would really have to make me change if I was in that type of a location. Yeah, and, I mean, there's there are blocks, um, 
like there's the there's a WMA uh, wildlife management area here close to me uh, that's like thirty two thousand acres, uh, but it's it's really it's long and narrow, uh, goes almost up to Arkansas, and it actually the bottom of it is about five minutes from my house here, and um, it's it's huge but again it's um you can get on it it's one of the larger ones uh, especially for this area but there's still little blocks of private that shoot in and out of it and uh the the boundaries aren't marked super well so you you better make sure you've got a good map program <clears throat> gotcha what's the i guess the hunting culture like down there oh it's it's about all there is <laughs> uh like the hunting it, hunting hunting is huge down here um it's it's called the sportsman uh sportsman's paradise for a reason um just about anybody you run into is going to be a hunter and if they're not a hunter um typically it's because of them or their family moved in because of uh barksdale air force base or you know one of the other air force situations um but most most people uh hunt down here uh it's part of the reason why it can be frustrating uh, especially for like this time of year is turkey hunting and um, Louisiana has the lowest number, lowest huntable turkey population, but the highest uh, turkey hunter population per capita. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But, so yeah, no, there, there's a ton of hunting, uh, um, what's the word, hunting pressure um, because of all the hunters. So what's it like hunting from probably one of the lesser thought of states for white-tailed deer in the country. I mean, when most people think of white-tailed deer hunting, Louisiana is probably the bottom of the list, if not on the bottom right. of the list. <laughs> well, I, I tell you this, and this is not because I live here, um, and it's it's not by, by any means that I've talked to people um, from all over. I've talked to different outfitters in other states. Um, if, if you learn to be successful with a bow on a whitetail in Louisiana, you will be successful and can be successful anywhere in the country. Um, I've, I've talked to multiple guys and they all, you know, they have, they have, have a wide variety of experience hunting all over the country. And they all say, uh, this part of the country, uh, Louisiana, especially is one of the most difficult places to, to be successful, um, bow hunting because of the hunting pressure and the thick thickness of the habitat here. Um, so it's, it's unique, man. It's, it's really, really tough. It's really frustrating, but, um, there's opportunities to learn things here that, uh, you can apply in other places that you're not necessarily able to learn and apply, uh, you know, uh, in the Midwest or, uh, in the North or even out West, um, just because of the, how thick it is, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of folks, um, when they hunt elsewhere you you see a lot of people talking about glassing deer and you know sitting back from a distance and watching and um you know there's a there's a bunch of scouting tactics that people talk about and you see on tv and you read at read about and that you just cannot you can't do it like it's it's you're not doing that in louisiana like there's no there's no sitting back and glassing it's very um very you know burning the rubber off your your shoes getting out there in the thick of it trying to trying to find them and i I know i realize you have to do that other places as well but um louisiana is just it's a tough place it's uh as far as a the hunting um regulations go you can kill you can kill six deer a year um our bow season goes from october 1st to january 31st 
but I think starting the third week of October, rifles. I'm sorry, the third week of October is. I'm, I'm getting this mixed up. The third weekend of October starts muzzleloader season, and then uh, rifle season starts. I think November, and it goes all the way through the second week of January. So we have nearly uh, three months of gun hunting, and uh, because even the the third week of January is a muzzleloader week, uh, our primitive weapon week, and then the very last week of January is back to bow hunting only. So you have nearly three months of rifle hunting. Um, you have just, you know, a couple of weeks of bow hunting only. And during that time, you can kill six, six deer, uh, three does, two bucks, and then uh, you get one either sex tag. And there's no regulation on the bucks. Um, in terms of size limits, uh, unless you, further further south you go, there's a few parishes that have a, a couple of point restrictions, antler restrictions, but for the majority of the state, uh, you can kill it. doesn't matter whether it's a, a spike or a 160-inch you know, deer, you can kill it. Um, so it's it's a lot of pressure. And just, like I said, just about everybody and their dog hunts, uh, literally dogs, because uh, dog hunting is huge down here. <laughs> that was, that was going to be my next question. I know it's southern Arkansas. Uh, and even just the general south, dog hunting is pretty big in that that area. So that was oh, my yeah. next question: was were dogs allowed? Beat me to that one. Yes, sir. Yeah, they're definitely allowed. So I can almost see how if you had access to a fairly sizable chunk of land and you just stayed out of it the entire year, you could kind of almost maybe get it loaded. But then, of course, you're missing out on all the the action for yourself throughout the earlier right. seasons. <laughs> right. Right. It, it, it's. You would you would think it would be uh, well, I, I guess I guess to um, it's very difficult to find a chunk of property in Louisiana, uh, like a, a, a large chunk of property in Louisiana that's all, all together. Most most of uh, Louisiana, even though the private privately owned places, it's broken up. You know, you, you'll have thirty acres here, sixty acres here, hundred and fifty acres here. Uh, 400 here, but it's all, you know, it's all, it's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. It's all fit together. There's very few, until you get into like the agriculture, um, that is like old plantations, um, that's passed down through family, family, and it's like family estate, estate type properties. Most of Louisiana is privately owned and it's been segmented, uh, so many times that it's little bitty sections of property. And, uh, and so you, uh, in, in theory, what you said is, is correct, but uh, it's not very probable to find something like that. <laughs> Interesting. So then for your your tactics and how that kind of, you know, forces you to do what you need to do, do you run like trail cameras at all too? Or kind of what's your throughout the year strategy for being able to, um, I guess, get on deer and then actually be able to hunt them? What kind of things are you doing? And are you doing anything different than you think a majority of the guys in your region? Um. I am yes. Trail cameras are a major, uh, major part of how I hunt. Um, I, I try to keep at least uh, a dozen trail cameras going, which um, that's that's a lot for me. Um, that's just you know one of those things that I've you, you acquire as you can get them, and um, I've gotten up to fifteen, and I think I'm actually back down to like nine just because of flooding, uh, you know, and, and them going out. But I've I had quite a few flooded over the past few years with all of our rain that we've been having but um yeah i, I try to early early season uh, i do what i call a shotgun approach with my trail cameras 
uh, on the properties I have permission to hunt, uh, whether it's public land or private. Uh, I have private family land that I hunt. I also have land that uh, is leased, and I have some land that I just have permission to hunt on. Uh, and again, the public land. So obviously, I try to hunt. You, you, you obviously don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So I, uh, I try to get as many options as I can. And uh, when the deer starting to grow, I put cameras all over the place and try to locate bachelor groups. And uh, once I locate a bachelor group, um, I try to figure out which buck is going to turn into what I think is going to be a shooter. Um, and I, I try to target mature bucks. Uh, so I try to figure out what buck's going to be the mature buck. And the closer it gets to season, uh, I kind of pick which which deer I'm going to chase. And I always try to have, you know, at least two different ones just in case one stops being consistent or disappears on me. I'll still have another one. And I, and I slowly start clustering my cameras in, in the areas of this single deer. So uh, it kind of tells you one of the things I do is I try to find a specific buck and target a specific buck uh, rather than just hunt deer in general. Um, and the reason being is when I can figure out one buck, that one buck will tell me what other bucks in the area are going to do, like patterns that they're going to travel. Because if one buck's comfortable doing it, then just about any other buck that comes to that territory, whether he's ever been been there or not is going to be comfortable going through that same area just because they're creatures of habit so um i I rely on my trail cameras real heavy uh for for situations like that um and i completely forgot where i was running with all of that so (laughs) (laughs) so i mean it seems like once you once you get i guess trail camera data and you learn all about a specific deer and and let's say you shoot that deer then you know in the following years when new deer come in and take over that same um, area or that same territory, you pretty much you have a lot better understanding of what tendencies there might already be for that deer to follow because you've probably already seen it in the past. Yeah. So what what it is 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 you know like I said a minute ago that the deer deer creatures have had it you know and they there's certain reasons why they like to travel the way they do whether it's a terrain feature um, whether it's a habitat feature, um, outside pressure that they're aware of that we might not be aware of. And, you know, they, there might just be, you know, there's some areas that just for whatever reason, there's always a rub line, uh, or there's always, you know, obviously there's areas where there's always a scrape, uh, but there's certain, you know, you, you, you have a hundred acres and, uh, out of that hundred acres, there's really only like maybe 15 acres of that, property that's really being consistently used and um and it's a matter of trying to figure out how those deer move through the property and if you can figure out how one deer likes to move through the property that'll one over time as you as you over the years as you figure out how one buck likes to move uh you can go to a completely another property and if you find a buck on that property and you try to figure out how that buck likes to move on that property you, you can kind of start seeing um, patterns, you know, whether it's uh, pine trees, oak trees, swamp, um, hilly, uh, flat, lowlands, you know, you, you can kind of, if you have access and, and years of uh, data, I guess, to put against, put against it, uh, you can kind of start seeing patterns um, because a lot of times I put, like when you're hunting a specific deer, 
um, you may or may not have the opportunity at that deer, but what you're at, at a specific buck. But what you're doing is you're putting yourself in, in an area that bucks like to travel. Because if, if one mature buck is comfortable traveling an area in broad daylight, then you know nine times out of ten, any other buck that travels through that area, um, even if he's from ten miles away and just happens to be you know chasing a doe or you know on the hunt, um, he is more than likely going to be comfortable traveling through the same areas in broad daylight that a local buck would be uh, just because, you know, the, the wind might travel through there just right. Uh, the, the land might just work better for ease of travel. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of variables there, but you can kind of start seeing patterns uh, from one property to another, one, one deer to another. And, um, and you can apply, you can, you can kind of try to, start applying them to different areas and uh when i started when i started really paying attention to that um I, my, my success on mature bucks spiked um and I, I it's it's been really neat to to see um how how deer move through properties and there's there's been a few little little things that have jumped out uh that you you know i've, I've noticed uh that that bucks like you know terrain features that deer like to travel regardless of the property um it's it's just kind of neat and then and then you got to figure out the deer's personality because every deer is different you know some are uh super super skittish and and you only get a picture of them every now and then and some deer you know you can nickname them hollywood because they want to stay in front of a camera and (laughs) you know they're they're there all the time uh they're they're really active um so they all kind of have their own personality like a dog just about and and if you can ever figure that out that obviously helps you out as well <clears throat> i'm really uh detail oriented on my my stuff I, I i pick trail camera pictures and trail camera videos apart probably more than what a lot of people do i, I study them um probably more than what i should <laughs> what kind of data are you gathering really when you when you look at those pictures are you looking at you know what the wind direction was that day when that picture was taken trying to figure out hey this buck only does this route or is in this area or is on this camera with you know say a northwest wind um different weather patterns or i guess what all you what all are you kind of collecting when you try and analyze those photos sometimes um i I, it it does it it kind of depends on the deer and on the situation as to whether or not I'm, i'm actually looking at the wind um because really i this is fixing to sound funny I, I in situations like that the wind the wind only tells me where i need to hang my tree um and how i need to approach the spot um but in terms of the deer the deer activity um what i'm looking at is uh, most of my cameras i try to keep on video mode i hardly ever use uh just the trail camera picture if i could put if the camera i use uh, can be put on video. I keep it on video, and the reason is uh, I've I noticed when the whole video feature first came out that a lot of times you would have deer. Uh, if it was a trail camera picture, you just have a deer walking across in front of the camera. Where on video you see the deer coming up from an angle, and then he gets there and he turns and goes another way, and you can actually see the direction the deer is coming from, and you know, you can see, okay, well, he will, he walked on this side of that tree or he came in from the other side of that bush. And that little bit of information can tell you a lot in terms of where that deer actually came from. And so I will backtrack a deer, uh, based on 
uh, the direction I see him coming from or going to, and I'll try to, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a specific instance uh, with a trail camera. You know, it's a it's a 30-foot, 50-foot, uh, you know, shot in the woods, and when that animal's there, I get a glimpse of what's happening right then. Well, when you can tell where the deer's coming from or going to, then you got to look at it from the big picture. Okay, where is he coming from, big picture? Uh, where is he going to? Even in, even in the rut, you know, um, you know, he might not be hanging out in a quote-unquote bedding area that he might would early season, but there might be a, like a temporary bedding area, or it could be from a, a food source from a, a neighboring property or, or some or a pipeline that might hold does, have does uh, feeding around it, and he's just going along checking that. Um, if you've put your boots on the ground and you know of scrape lines or rub lines in the in the area, then you can say, okay, well, he's probably you know coming from that those scrapes over there, heading to this scrape. Um, depending on the terrain feature, you can see whether he's following uh, draws or coming up ridge lines. Um, there, there's just a there, there's a lot of little a lot of little details um, in in that in that regard in terms of uh, terrain features and habitat features that uh, help me and that I pay attention to uh, based on where the deer is coming from in the video that I have. Um, because a lot of times the deer will come in and they'll, they'll make a hook. You know, you you think you might you might always be getting pictures of the deer coming in from the left um, on your camera when in actuality he's actually coming in from the right and just making a big loop. Because uh, most of my deer in the rut, most of my cameras are on scrapes, and uh, or you know a, a, a trail or a rub line, and a lot of times those the deer will hook in from the direction of the, where they're you know they're coming in from the downwind side of that. Uh, but they might be, they might not be traveling on the downwind side of it. They might be coming at a crosswind and then hooking into it. Um, and a lot of times those videos will tell you that information. So when you piece together kind of the big picture, is there any specific, I mean, are you trying to find when, like in terms of your setup and how you're going to act on that information, are you really trying to find where the deer is coming from? Or are you trying to focus more on where the deer is heading to? Maybe it's like a you know, a major food source or something like that, or are you just using that information to find certain pinch points along that deer's travel route that you think you can intercept them at? Yes. <laughs> uh, all of the above. Um, but most, most of the time, I'm trying to figure out where the deer's coming from. Um, and, and the reason being is uh, most of the time, uh, I'm, I'm going to be hunting where uh, I, I like to find bedding thickets. I like to find the thickets, uh, even if even if it's not a like really what a lot of people would call a bedding thicket. You know, even if it's just a, a little bit of a brush that the buck might just stop and take a break in. If there's a rub line going through it, there's a reason there's a rub line going through it. And if I can figure out um, a thicket like that uh, in the direction the deer is coming from, and I say that I hunt. I hunt in a thicket. A, a lot of times the deer I, I hunt, I, I hunt with my ears almost more than I hunt with my eyes because it's so thick. Um, a lot of times I, I can only see 20 yards, and when the deer shows up, I'm only looking at his legs from his knees down, and uh, I, I don't know whether it's a shooter, whether it's a buck or doe or whatever, until it, it finally gets into a clearing in bow range by that, and I just have to be ready and know whether or not I'm going to shoot it. 
and uh, because it's so thick. So it's it's funny to say, yeah, I'm looking for a thicket when I'm actually hunting in the thicket um, a lot of times. But uh, I, I do I hunt. I try to figure out where it's early early season. Um, I guess that's the easiest way to approach it. Is early early season. I'm trying to figure out the bedding thicket because early season they have a uh, they're they're more consistent. They have a pattern. Uh, you know, they're still in their summer pattern, and uh, they there are areas that they like to bed in. And so early October they're still kind of in their summer pattern, and I try to figure out where they're bedding most often and where they're coming from and i backtrack it uh, normally I, I put late summer my cameras are on a natural food source whether it's uh you know vetch ragweed marsh elder uh, french mulberry wh- whatever whatever type of um natural browsing is going on right that right then and the deer tend to come out you know in the afternoons just like what you would if you're glassing uh but i use my camera to glass for me and I, and I check the camera. I'm like, okay, well, these bucks typically are coming from this direction. Well, then I'll leave that camera there, and I'll stagger another camera, you know, 80 yards away. Um, sometimes right beside that camera on the same tree, pointing a different direction, just to try to figure out exactly where those bucks are coming from. And I'll stagger cameras like that until I can get relatively close to a what I consider a thicket that a deer would be coming from. Um, something that I can find a spot that's downwind of the, the you know, using the prevailing win that time of year um something that i can slip into uh knowing that i'm going to be getting off work um you know something i can slip into relatively quietly uh last minute um and so early season i'm trying to find uh a bedding thicket and i'm crowding it i i, I crowd bedding thick I'm, I'm fairly aggressive with my hunting um so i'll crowd a thicket sometimes get right up in the middle of it on day one you know a lot of folks they they start and they don't they, they try not to get too close to the thicket and I'm like, where's he at? I want to be in his bedroom. And, um, and so I'll, I'll get right in there with them right off the bat. So that's typically what I do early season as a rut picks up. Uh, I start focusing more on scrapes. I hunt real heavy over scrapes. And what I, what I really like, uh, hunting is rub lines, uh, that connect scrapes. And, um, if I can, what I like to do, uh, when the rut really kicks in is I find I'm, I'm more on the travel patterns here in the rut versus, um, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm on a travel pattern in a thicket, um, try to find a thicket of the area in the area. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll find a rub line and I will follow the rub line until that rub line goes into a thicket. Once that rub line goes into a thicket, then that tells me that that's more than likely an area that the buck's going to move in daylight. Uh, one that there's more rubs in there and it's thicker, obviously. Uh, so they feel more cover. Uh, and even better is once you go into a thicket at that point, then I start looking at terrain features. And if I can find, uh, you know, uh, uh, a draw or a little dip or something within or a ridge line with the, within that thicket uh that's a terrain feature that i focus on um uh, especially if the ropes you know go right along beside that for whatever reason i've noticed um if i can find uh like a thicket that also holds uh, a defined terrain feature like a draw or a saddle or something uh, that tends to be an area that bucks at least down here that bucks like to travel uh in daylight and uh, I've, I've killed killed quite a few and uh had had 
really close encounters with quite a few bucks uh, doing that and finding features like that. Um, and then late season, I go back to, um, you know, they get more, they start reverting back to the summer pattern, um, starting to try to find uh, food sources again, and they hold even tighter to a thicket. So uh, late season, I kind of go back to my, my early early season tactics of, um, of betting, betting and food scenarios. <clears throat> I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, as you kind of go over that whole scenario, especially from early to late season, and I think about even up here in Minnesota, it's like the things that you're saying are very similar to like the things that I see here as well. It's like, yeah, the terrain might be different. You guys have might, might have different, you know, habitat down there. But in terms of how the deer are acting at different times of the season, you know, like the biggest thing up here is that, by the time late season rolls around, the habitat looks completely different. Um, and the, right. the bedding's a lot more condensed and they might be in different areas in late season than they were in early season. But in terms of what the deer are actually doing, yeah, it's definitely the same type of, of hunting and scouting style. Yeah, for sure. Do you think your style has kind of really, is different because in that area of this U.S., there's not as many defined funnels like between ag fields you know a narrow strip of timber things like that whereas in the south it's mostly those thickets that are the funnels where you may have you know kind of more open pine stand on one side and then you find these lower areas that are full of smilax greenbrier you know that makes it thicker you know do you think that's one of the big things that really made you focus on looking at the details so much absolutely yeah you're you're forced to um because there's no uh, man, I, it's funny. I've got guys, you know, friends and and customers uh, that that come in. They they'll go hunt Kansas or Missouri, and they come back. You know, almost every year they're coming back with a quality deer, and they're they laugh. They're like, man, it's a joke hunting up there compared to that. like you bust your tail down here hunting, and you know, you go up there and they said the deer actually act like they're supposed to they respond to calls they move around in daylight uh you know if there's a funnel you go find a spot and and hang a tree and you're gonna have deer show up and uh it's it's hilarious listening to uh my customers and people talk that are successful bow hunters down here and then when they go up there man they they clean house um every every year it's really funny and um but yeah i, I think because it is so thick down here, um, and if you're going to be a successful bow hunter, you're forced you're forced to look at the details. Like you you have to. Um, it's something I, I I try to tell people, especially if they're getting into it. Uh, details make the masterpiece. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're actually drawing or whether you're you know any any aspect of your life. The details make the masterpiece, and it's especially true with hunting. Uh, even more so with bow hunting and even more so with traditional bow hunting um you know the the more detailed you the, the more details you can pay attention to uh the closer it'll put you uh to a mature deer or deer period depending on what you're looking for but yeah man it's it makes a big difference and that's that's part of the reason why um you, you talk to anybody who's successful in the south bow hunting and you're going to find somebody who pays attention and really um I hate to sound this because anybody, anytime you, everybody you talk to, they're where they hunt is the hardest place in the country to hunt. Like, it doesn't matter who you talk to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that's just how it is. Um, everybody thinks where they are is the hardest. And I, I get that, you know, but uh, 
the the people that you tend to, and it, this this is a, a I guess a blanket statement. It doesn't matter what part of the country. The successful bow hunters are the woodsmen. You know, the people who they they learn to read the sign that the animals tell you, or that the animals leave. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're you know in Pennsylvania or in Wisconsin or uh, you know in Louisiana. If you can learn to read the sign uh, and apply apply it to your hunting. Um, then you're going to be successful and down here you're forced to read the sign um, you, you can't just sit back from a distance and say yeah this is a good uh, you know it's a crop with a, a good funnel uh, you know there's a I mean there's very there's a few places in Louisiana like that but overall there's there's not many um, like you, you have to you have to figure out where the funnels are even though that there's like if you were just walking through the woods there's certain areas that I hunt that people have come in to help me get deer and they're like man what made you pick that tree like this looks like a wide open hardwood bottom and i'm like well it is a wide open hardwood bottom but there's a funnel here <laughs> and what and a lot of times it's, it'll just be a one line of a specific type of tree that goes into the middle of a you know where the, the bottom might be a completely different type of tree but for whatever reason there i'll just i'm just going to throw some types of trees out there say there's a line of cypress trees that goes into a oak bottom well for whatever reason sometimes those bucks might want to travel the line of cypress trees um i don't know why but sometimes they'll and everything will be identical other than that line of trees and for whatever reason the bucks will choose that line of trees to walk down um rather than cutting across the oak bottom and uh and if you can figure that out then it's obviously you're going to be a lot more successful uh, than just randomly picking an oak tree. Um, And that's, that's just a a, a example, but you know, uh, if you can read the details and figure it out, man, um, it it definitely applies uh, all over. Digital scouting is something that's just become so big. And what a lot of people from the Midwest may not understand is when you go to do digital scouting in the South, in those areas, the topo map pretty much looks the same because there's not a lot of contour changes. And then it's a tree canopy cover. So you can't identify any type of funnel. You can't identify a ridge. I can remember when I started college, I went to college in central Arkansas. And I remember I had it with this guy. And he's like, yeah, he's like, go back, walk back down through this bottom and you'll see a little ridge and then, you know, fall that ridge out to your left and hone the end of that ridge. I walked around that place for like two and a half hours until well after daylight. And I'm like, I do not know where this ridge is. And so finally I just hunted off the ground and I remember, you know, I was like, I'd never found this. He's like, how did you not find this ridge? So he walked back in there with me that afternoon. And when he said ridge, it was like a one foot elevation gate. Yep. And I was like, how am I supposed to see this? It's dark. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that is, that is 100% accurate. Uh, Like, it's it's funny, man. It'll it'll be, and that's something I've I've noticed. Uh, that that literally can be considered a ridge in some areas, where it'll be a flat bottom, and you have one tiny little rise, and for whatever reason, that's the spot that the deer want to travel. But everything else is identical, except like a foot difference in terrain. And, and most people who don't hunt it often would never know it's a rise unless they're there in years where it floods, and then right. the deer really funnel in that, and I guess it just. They get that in their mind. Like you said, they're a creature of habit. They walk it when it floods. So even when there's not a flood, they still walk that same area. And it's, you know, 13 inches of difference over right. a 20-yard <laughs> area. And it's like, well, yeah, I wouldn't have picked that. 
That's hilarious. I'm, I'm so glad you shared that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is, that is definitely one of those, one of those little things that, uh, it's, it's fr- honestly, it's frustrating. Like it, it really can be frustrating because you, you'll walk right over the top of something like that and for a couple of years and then all of a sudden realize, wait a minute, there's always deer tracks right here. And you start like, and then you stop and you, you get to look in and you're like, wait, there's a, this is a ridge. <laughs> this is a high point. And, uh, but yeah, it, it can be frustrating. It's just, a, you, you gotta definitely slow down and, and try to figure it out. <laughs> I did have one more question on the trail cameras and your kind of strategy for them is just how often do you check all your cameras? Man, I'm completely opposite of what most people are. Um, if I could check my cameras every single day, I would. Um, and in some places, I do. Um, I, and I know that sounds crazy, but there are some time, there are some cameras that I will literally check every single day. Um, it doesn't matter the time of year or, or anything. Um, now, I'm very low key. Uh, anytime I go in the woods, I'm very low key. Like you won't hardly. Um, like I, I won't talk, I don't hardly talk loud. Uh, you're not gonna hardly catch me talking loud in the woods period. It's just kind of a, a, a personal rule, I guess. Um, like I don't talk loud. Um, I, I don't make a lot of noise. Even when I'm walking, I, I, I try to be relatively quiet. Um, I slip around more than, more than I do anything. Um, unless I'm just, you know, on a, on a mission to get somewhere or something, but I'm, I'm very low key about entering the woods. Um, especially when I get into areas with trail cameras, but part of the reason why I want to check them is deer change their patterns. Uh, they go through multiple transitions throughout the year. There's, there's like two or three transitions they go through in the summer and then during deer season, they go through, you know, at least, at least three. Um, and it's, and every area is a little different. Um, and it's just, if, if I can't figure out, if I don't know when that deer transitioned, then I don't know that I need to be looking somewhere else or that I don't know that I need to be looking for a different food source or, you know, I need to be looking for a different bedding thicket. Um, so I don't, I don't really, I'm not too concerned about, um, my scent or anything like that because I actually, this is again, fixed to be opposite of what you might hear a lot of people, but I actually want my scent in there a little bit. Um, because if, if the deer is used to picking up little bits and pieces, and again, I'm, I'm very low key. I'm not touching, I'm, I don't touch the trees. I try my best not to touch anything except my trail camera. Um, but other than just whatever type of lingering scent that follows me in, um, if a deer walks through and catches that every now and then, uh, I'm okay with that because it's not strong enough for the deer, for it to really spook the deer because I'm not doing anything over the top. Um, it might make, might make them a little uncomfortable, but it's not going to make them just completely leave the area. And the reason being is if I'm hunting come October and the deer walks through and the wind is slightly off or swirls a little bit, he catches just a little hit. Uh, he's not going to turn inside out or immediately get uncomfortable like he would have if my scent had been being in there. And, uh, and obviously I'm not trying to go in there and leave leave a bunch of scent i'm just not really concerned about uh my ground scent when i go in and out um and in fact there's been several times that i when i've slipped in to go find my camera i wind up walking up on my target buck uh that's happened numerous times and uh and i just have i'll, I'll sometimes i'll spook him and uh, and he'll slip off and as long as i just grab my card and leave you know swap cards and leave um you know if, if i spook the deer then i'm going to give it I'm going to give it a few days. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to. Again, if I could be there every day, I would. But if I spook the deer 
Um, normally, I'm going to give it a little bit, a day or two before I go back in. Um, normally, if I can find the deer or see the deer before he sees me, I'll sit tight, uh, let him continue on doing his thing, and then I'll, I'll do my thing and leave. Um, so it's it's it doesn't stress me out if I if I bump into the deer or, or see it, um, you know, when I'm going in there trying to check my cameras. And uh, there was something else I was fixing to say in that regard, and I forget what it was now. But <clears throat> anyway, no, I don't I don't stress too bad about my my how often I go in there. I, I go in there. I go in there uh, pretty stinking often. <laughs> yeah, I have a buddy who took that same type of mentality and, and he was checking cameras like two or three times a week in a certain area and kind of doing the exact, he had probably, you know, half a dozen cameras he was checking on that frequency and he would always do the same exact route and check the cameras in that's, the same order and just kind of almost, exactly what I was gonna say. almost make himself a pattern that the deer can get used to. So like you said, once if the deer smell you being there, it's like they almost get used to that pattern and you know, it's like if you look at, you know, farms like around here, like the deer don't get spooked by, you know, tractors or farm equipment or usually like the farmers because they're used to that kind of stuff going on every day. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's exactly right. Because uh, that's what I was going to say. When I go into an area, I, I try to do, I try to take the same path um, every single time. You know, it, even if I'm driving a four-wheeler uh, relatively close um, on, on the private land that I hunt, if I'm driving a four-wheeler, uh, I'll leave the four-wheeler running. Uh, that way the deer is distracted by the noise of the four wheeler running and I hop off and I walk, you know, 80 to 100 yards or however uh, to get in there to the camera. If it's close, if it's far, obviously I turn the four wheeler off. But, uh, you know, but I, I walk the same trail every time because I noticed um, that when I get off that trail a little bit uh, or if I make a loop and, and try to do something different, that's when I wind up jumping deer. That They just hunker down when I walk by them. Uh, but if, if I try to, if I... I, I try to put myself on a pattern that the deer can pattern, um, and then when you actually go in there to hunt, you can get just slightly off of your other pattern and uh, wind up killing deer that way. Uh, but, but yeah, what, what your buddy does is is exactly is exactly right. You can you can do that pretty frequently. <clears throat> That's the same philosophy my dad's had pretty much all my life. Was he would go out the walk through the property two or three times a day, you know, the morning, the afternoon, the evening, and walk through there. And the deer got so accustomed to seeing him and hearing him that they didn't think anything of it. Like you said, you do, you could walk right by a deer, but if you slowed your pace or changed your pace, then they got a little bit more alerted. So if he got in there and got on stand and they come through and smelled him, they didn't think anything wiser of it because it's an everyday occurrence for them. You're making that part of your natural environment for them. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. And that's, that's another thing. Like when I go in and I see a deer, um, I will try my best to ignore, I slow down. Like if, the, if I know the deer sees me and the deer, you know, a lot of times they'll just lock up and stare at you. Like I'm, I'm hidden. Um, and they, they won't move, they won't run. Uh, or they'll just kind of slowly start easing off. Um, sometimes I don't stop. Um, I, I will keep moving. I'll keep doing exactly what I'm doing. I'll act like I don't see them. Um, but I, I'll, I'll just keep a steady pace. I don't do anything erratic. I don't stop and face them. I don't look at them directly. And uh, I just kind of keep them in the peripheral. And uh, a lot of times, uh, I've, I've done this with, with bucks. Uh, in fact, I, I did this one one time and actually killed 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 the deer uh, because the deer just stood there in the ragweed. He thought he was hidden. Like I I was walking down a trail and I just happened to look over and there was a deer standing off in the brush, um, 
off, off of the brush, off of the trail that I was walking on. And I'm like, check that out. That's a deer that I like, I would shoot that deer if he stayed there. And the closer I got, and I, I didn't slow my my pace. I didn't do anything. And the deer was on my right. And, uh, in the like mid, I just, while I was walking, I pulled an arrow out, knocked it. And, uh, and last minute, you know, I've just turned and I walked backwards the last like 10 yards or so. So I could have the deer actually on my left side since I'm right-handed. And, uh, and as soon as a little gap opened up in the brush, I paused just long enough to hit my anchor point and shot him. <laughs> uh, so I mean, you could, you could definitely, uh, get away with stuff like that. Um, you know, as long as you just keep doing what you're doing and you don't stop and let the deer know, Hey, I'm looking at you. Um, you know, they, they relax pretty are, are they 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 can stay relaxed around you uh just because they see you it doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna turn inside out and run away yeah there's been a couple instances where i've been climbing the tree and kind of pulling my gear up and notice how the corner of my eye that a deer is already you know sort of within bow range locked up looking at me like maybe standing in the cattails or something and right. it's like it's like if i just like stop and like look at the deer like it's a game over but if I just kind of keep like keep pulling the stuff up, pull the pack up, pull the bow up, and just like act like I'm you know still doing what I'm doing, it's like sometimes I'll just sit there and watch it long enough to get an arrow knocked and and draw back. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Uh, it, it again, it goes back to kind of the personality of the deer. Some of them, some of them will uh, they're a lot more tolerant of of things, and other deer, man, you they even think you're looking at them and they're they're gone. Mm-hmm. Especially those southern deer, they are a lot more skittish than midwestern deer. Oh, it's stupid! It is like our our deer are schizophrenic. Like there's, <laughs> it's, so it's not, ridiculous. Not only do you hunt in probably one of the least desirable states to hunt whitetail deer in, you hunt the most skittish deer in the world, and right. then you hunt them with a traditional bow on top of that. You're just trying to make it hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's pretty accurate. Yeah. It's. It's funny because there's not a ton of people down here that hunt with trad bows. And uh, when I first started hunting with one, I mean, I got laughed at. It was like, I, what are you doing? Like, people struggle to kill deer with a gun down here. Why are you doing that? <laughs> so, uh, it's just, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very, I'm very uh, goal oriented. It's one of those things. Once I had my, especially when it comes to hunting, once I had it set in my mind that I wanted to kill a deer with a trad bow, it's like I wasn't gonna stop until I did it. And then once I did it, I, I was like, this is the best thing ever. I'm never doing anything else. I've never hunted anything else. <laughs> How long have you been so, hunting pretty much strictly with the traditional? Uh, I think eight, 2011 uh, is when, when I started hunting with the trap. That was the first year I hunted, uh, hunted with a recurve. And I've seen some of your pictures. It's not just whitetails in Louisiana. You've, you've taken that thing all over the place, it looks like. Yeah, um, so I'm kind of uh, in, a, in a unique deal where I've, I've been uh, going to Colorado every year since I was probably two years old. Uh, my dad's been, he goes out there hunting uh, mule deer and elk every year, and uh, he has been ever since him and my mom first uh, got married, and uh, it's just been one of those deals. Uh, anyway, long story short, I've been going out to Colorado every year hunting. That was actually the first place I ever bow hunted in my life was Colorado. I was 12 years old, and, uh, and I hunted, I was old enough to hunt with a bow strong enough to draw a bow that could kill a deer and uh and i hunted in colorado because their season opened before ours and uh so by you know just by default um as i grew up i just steadily made that yearly trek out there and uh actually my very first i live in louisiana but my first trad kill uh traditional bow kill was a was a mule deer in colorado uh 
Awesome. Is that a spot and stock type of hunt, or was that more of an ambush? No, no it's funny. We hunt we hunt mule deer uh, and and elk the same way we do whitetail down here. Um, you know, it's a matter of finding finding pinch pinch points, finding uh, you know those funnels, the travel routes, uh, food bedding. You know, all, all animals essentially they're creatures of habit, and if you can uh, if you can figure out what they do in one area, uh, you can apply it to other areas and other species. And, uh, so, you know, mule deer and elk, um, you know, they, they like the path of least resistance. So, uh, you know, you hunt saddle, like if you fought, if you have a ridge of the mountain and then there's a saddle, um, you know, the deer are going to want to travel over the saddle rather than over the peak of the mountain. And, uh, cause it's easier. And, uh, you go to the saddle and you start finding multiple trails and then, you know, you find cross trails and you get downwind of that, hang a tree and, you know, and hunt. And, uh, so I've, I've killed I've killed mule deer up there, spot and stalk, um, but the majority of uh, the animals I've killed in Colorado have all been out of a tree stand. Even the elk, I've killed three elk, uh, and all of them have been out of a out of a tree stand. That's a lot of work pulling a tree stand up those mountains. Yeah, it's a pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not fun. <laughs> Although you hunt with a saddle now, don't you? Yeah, that's that's actually I was just fixing to say uh, last year we went. Uh, we went to, to a different part of Colorado. We were bear hunting in Colorado, and man, it was awesome. Uh, last year was the first time I hunted out west with a saddle, and uh, you know, my dad, my dad, and uh, the other guy that was out there with us, he, you know, they they were packing their. They had multiple tree stands. They had all their climbing sticks, like multiple for, for multiple setups. And uh, dude, it was <laughs> it was so nice just to have my my saddle, throw it in my backpack. And, uh, and I had my one set of climbing sticks that I just put, you know, set up, take down, uh, every time. And, uh, man, it was, it was so nice. I was, I was done packing way before them. (laughs) (laughs) Not to mention, I don't have to haul that thing. You know, I can either wear it in or throw it in my backpack and go. And, uh, you know, I'm not having to carry the whole, the whole stand in. Uh, so that, yeah, it's, it's going to definitely be, it was absolutely a game changer down here. Uh, but it absolutely is going to make my hunts more enjoyable up there. Oh, I can it's imagine. It's amazing the number of tree stands I've found out here that are 15, 20 yards off the side of a trail because somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to pack a stand back to this wallow. They get about halfway, they're like, nope, I'm done with this. And they just, right. <laughs> it's like you didn't even want to carry it back down the mountain. Right. You know, two and a half, three miles in, and boom, there's a tree stand. 15 yards off the trail, laid up underneath the tree. They're like, I'm done. I'm not carrying this any farther. <laughs> yep. There is, there's only 40 bucks. So it's, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it there. I mean, I remember, yeah, pretty funny. I remember being in Colorado, the one of the first years we were there and finding this, you know, secluded wall that you had no idea was there type of deal where it didn't show up on the map because it was all dark timber and you just like happened upon it. Right. You just follow a trail and all of a sudden you just come up upon this wall and it's like, man, things just loaded with sign but it's like how do you even hunt this with the wind swirling as bad as it can in some of those types of spots it's like we could just get up in the tree and like a tree stand would be a nightmare but a saddle makes so much sense for that type of setup yeah for sure i mean it's it it, like especially down here um you know it's primarily hunting out of a tree stand and there there were numerous times this year i don't know what the deal was the, the wind swirled ridiculously down here i don't know if that's how it was all over the country but northwest louisiana the wind was it was 
you know, moody, bipolar. It couldn't make up its mind where it wanted to blow. And uh, there were several hunts. Uh, one hunt in particular, I climbed five different trees before I finally settled on a tree. Uh, like, I was in the same area. I probably didn't move out of a 30-yard circle, but I climbed five different trees because I, I'd climb, <laughs> and I was like, hey, this will work, and then the wind would shift. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> and I'd climb back down, and I'd go somewhere else, and I'd, I'd climb up, you know, and finally I, I settled on a spot that it was the, the lesser of all four other evils, and, uh, you know, uh, but... Yeah, that for that situation, man, those those saddles absolutely they, they shine. So how is the how is shooting his trad bow from a saddle? I know that's one question I get a lot is, you know, how hard is it? Is it difficult? I mean, what's your thoughts on it just honestly? Uh, honestly, it's to me, I, I don't know I don't know why, but I pick it, it wasn't it wasn't difficult for me at all. Um, I, I have heard, or, uh, I've learned some hard lessons. <laughs> I learned a couple of hard lessons that first year. Um, but overall, uh, I'll be honest, this is fixing to sound uh, completely opposite of what you read on Saddle Hunter or any of the other forums for people that hunt with a saddle. Um, man, I got, I ordered, I ordered the, uh, the Kestrel uh, when it, when uh, I first saw, I don't know, it was, I don't know if this first year it was made or what, but I ordered the Kestrel and I didn't get it until uh, it was middle of opening week of season down here is when I received it. Um, as soon as I got it, I was like, awesome. You know, I was pumped. I have trees in my yard. Um, I actually have my, my bow pretty much stays in the back seat of my truck that time of year. And uh, so when I pulled in my driveway, I pulled the saddle out. I kind of looked everything over. And this is literally the first time I've ever been in a saddle. I've, I've never hunted out of one, never tried one out, nothing. And uh, I went and grabbed a couple of climbing, those muddy climbing sticks, climbed up a tree, uh, had the saddle on, and I figured out how to tie it, you know, tether off, uh, you know, did all that, climbed back down the tree, grabbed my bow, climbed back up the tree, and I shot two or three times from my front yard. Uh, within probably 20 minutes of me getting it out of the package and the next time I was with the saddle I was hunting and that's all the practice I did and um, I, it, like a few weeks later I killed a hog uh, then a couple of weeks after that I killed a, a really nice uh, like 150 inch buck um, out of it and I, I was like I was like man this is a piece of cake and uh, like this there's nothing to this and uh but it was because of how I'd set this my set my uh self up in those situations later in the year uh i, I made a hard learned learned a hard lesson um to where you you can get so focused on you know shooting uh and you get really comfortable with it to where you you quit focusing on your form as much and your form is still obviously very critical it doesn't matter what you're hunting out of and there was a, uh, a particular instance that year uh, where I drew, this was last year, um, I had a doe come in and I drew, picked my spot and shot and it was almost like the arrow hit her and bounced off of her. And, uh, and it looked like, like a perfect shot. And, uh, and I was like, what in the world? Like I got no penetration and the deer runs out there, you know, kind of kicks her leg, looks around and flicks her tail and just kind of trots off. And I'm like, that didn't make any sense at all. Well, I kind of went back through everything, and I was in a really bad contorted position uh, because I had uh, it was late season, and I think I had eight or nine does show up. They all walked underneath me at once, 
and I was in a really bad position and I couldn't I couldn't stretch out the way I normally do and so I just drew and hit my anchor point and the problem is I was at such a bad in a bad position that when I drew I did not fully expand uh, my back tension and I only drew my bow probably like six inches and so it was like shooting a kid shooting a kid's bow at that deer <laughs> and uh, you know I got like a, it was just it was just bad so that was a that was a hard lesson learned and uh, so from now on like anybody that I, I, I get asked that question as well and for me it was not a hard transition uh, but something I tell people is make sure you focus on your your form. Like you've still got to fully expand. You still have to pay attention to your upper body. Um, you know you can't. Yeah, you can shoot from a, a weird position, but even in a weird position, you have to you have to you know make sure you're coming to full draw. Um, but honestly, honestly, it wasn't it wasn't bad. The only thing that has been a little bit um, of a hiccup and. It, it really it was it was honestly the reason why it took me the longest time i would have got a saddle years ago i've been looking at them for a long time uh had a hunted with a compound i would have had one a long long time ago and um you know i, I would have just jumped jumped into it a long time ago but uh, the reason why i didn't is i'm hunting with a trad boat and my biggest concern was maneuvering a 60 plus inch boat around that tether you know and being able to shoot in oddball positions because you can't just, yeah, in theory, you know, you can walk around the tree or you can spin around, but you can't get away with that much movement because um, you're, one, with the track bow, you're not wanting to get really high. You don't need to get really high. Um, and two, like I said, I don't know about other parts of the country, but down here, you can't get away with very much movement. In fact, I think it was, Garrett, it might have been you. I watched one of your YouTube videos uh, a while back. Uh, it was actually when I was when I was tossing around the idea of getting uh, – getting a saddle i was trying to find people who were hunting out of them with a trap up because it was a concern and, uh, and i was like man I, I don't see anybody being successful with a trad bow and definitely nobody filming themselves being successful with a trad bow out of a saddle and uh and it was like a spike or full point or something walked underneath you and you like swung out from behind the tree and went to shoot and the deer's like looking at you moving and uh <laughs> and you you went to finally the deer like tore out and i was like what in the world? Like, why is that deer? Why is that deer putting up with that? <laughs> but, uh, like, I, I, there's no way I could have gotten away with that much movement, and uh, and so it was a concern. Uh, but it's just a matter of, you know, even with the tree stand, you still have to if you're left if you're right-handed, you still want to set your stand up to where the bulk of your shots are going to be on your left side, and so you still like you still treat the saddle the same way where you set it up to where the bulk of your shots are in your wheelhouse. You know, you you try to set it up where you're having to move as little as possible. Um, you know, obviously, if you can keep the tree, use the tree as cover, that would be ideal. But, um, you know, if, if you can't, the, the main thing is, you know, setting up where you don't have to move a whole lot. So when I started doing that and, uh, you know, I, you don't have to move around the tether very much, but... Uh, I've learned how to use use the saddle and, and I lower my tether and it just I've, I've figured out how to how to maneuver around it now uh, but that was my concern uh, initially and uh, that was I guess the, the longest learning curve uh, was figuring that part of it out but it really wasn't it, it, it wasn't a bad transition man not not at all I think for a traditional bow to me they're a little easier because the bow you don't have like if you have a wraparound tree stand or just a tree stand in general you know, like a climber specifically. There's just more problems for your lower limb than with the saddle. Absolutely, yeah. 
And to me, that's just a big thing is you get that bow out away from the tree farther where there's nothing there. I mean, your platform or your ring of steps is against the base of the tree, sticks out a foot, foot and a half maybe, but you don't have this big platform, you don't have a shooting rail. And I can remember trying to shoot deer from a tree stand with a traditional bow, and I tried to draw a deer 10 times and never could get to draw without hitting something. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, man. Yeah, it makes a, it, it really does. It opens up. That's what I've, I've told, uh, I've, I've had multiple people call me asking, uh, you know, asking me about hunting out of a saddle, and um, that's one of their concerns, and, and I'll tell them, like, it really does, uh, obviously, there's there's never a fix-all, like, there's no fix-all head that's going to kill every deer that you shoot, there's no fix-all arrow, there's no fix-all stand, um, but in my opinion, the saddle opens up more opportunities than any other. Like, there are some situations where a tree stand is just going to be better, whether it's for comfort or um, hiding, you know, capabilities or whatever. Just, I mean, that's just the facts. Um, just like there's some areas where obviously hunting off the ground is better. Um, but overall, uh, to me, a tree saddle uh, definitely opens up more opportunities uh and in a lot of ways from from the number of trees or the type of tree that you can get in uh to you know the shot opportunity situation like what you're talking about um it's just it definitely opens up more opportunities for you and and using a platform uh with the uh like something to actually plant your feet on that makes a huge difference as well uh the first year i was just standing on top of my last set of climbing sticks um and that's how i hunted was standing on my climbing sticks and uh that was the only platform i had was the top two pegs <laughs> and uh that was uh, it was doable i killed you know quite a few hogs and, and deer doing that that way but one it was not comfortable and uh, i missed a uh opportunity at a really nice buck at the end of season uh a couple of days before i made that i botched the situation with that doe and like short drawing uh and i so that was a uh, that was one of those situations i was like you know if i'd have had a platform um, I could have planted my feet, shifted my weight, and been able to get that get that shot off. Um, so ever that was the last time I did that. Um, I'm a I'm a pretty quick learner when it comes to hunting uh, mistakes. If I made a mistake or it didn't work out, then the next time I go hunting, I'm not going to be in that same situation. Uh, as soon as that buck uh, got by me, uh, I immediately went and got a platform and uh and, and fixed actually in that particular tree i actually hung a <laughs> i actually hung a muddy lock on and then was hunting out of my tree saddle standing on a muddy lock on. <laughs> <laughs> that way you know i could swing around the tree and I, it just opened me up a whole lot more one thing that has seemed to make it easier for me is actually making conscious effort to try and touch my knees to the tree you know what regardless if i'm using like step style platform or just like a big block style platform is just to be able to get the attachment not only from your feet on the platform but also if your knee touches the trunk and then it seems to be able to free up your upper body a little bit more because you have a little bit more stable base and then you can have more freedom of movement to get that whole upper body to you to move more as a unit whereas it seemed like if i was just kind of leaning away from the tree then i was more likely to kind of keep a little bit of bow torque in my you know from my upper body yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I honestly think that's what I, I was literally just hanging there in a really, really bad position when I tried to shoot that doe, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't anchored, uh, like you said, uh, on the on the bottom side. Uh, I, I definitely agree. I, I try to. Uh, I either I'm, I'm either with a, a knee against the tree, 
or uh, my knees are essentially locked where I'm, I'm leaning out uh, and I'm not in like a weird, like loose position. I don't know how to describe that other than the loose position. Um, I, I'm trying to be as stable as I can on the, on the bottom side. So I, it can, like you said, put, put your top, your upper body in, in the position that it needs to be. Yeah. And you film your hunts too. And I was watching actually one of your recent videos and you actually run the camera arm a little bit differently than I do in terms of positioning. I thought that was interesting. I might try that out too, because it's always it always seems like it's a pain when you have a, a saddle. You can't put the camera arm in a normal position like you think you'd be able to with a tree stand, because then you right. lose you lose the ability to kind of maneuver around the tree quite as much because that camera arm at a certain point gets in the way. So I thought exactly. it was kind of interesting the way you had it set up would have been kind of almost the opposite way. Like we both like to I think put the camera arm on the back side of the tree, but I would kind of right. wrap it around the opposite way that you usually did. Yeah, I, and the, the reason, and I might have explained that in the video, but I, I try to I try to put it on the side that I would actually be shooting on, on the back side of where I'd be shooting on. Um, that way, I can I can actually control it. Uh, even if I'm I'm pivoting out that way, um, I'm not having to reach. I'm not reaching around the tree, and I don't have the tree trunk in the way. And when I go to move, my, there's less movement between. Uh, the camera and my bowstring. If I'm having to make an adjustment last minute, um, you know, the camera arm, the camera itself is right there beside where I'm fixing to shoot. And uh, I can keep tabs on uh, what I'm filming. I can keep tabs on, uh, you know, string clearance. And uh, it's just easier for me to uh, have access to my controls and actually see what's going on when I have it all on the same side of the tree uh, like that. Yeah, definitely. Something to play around with a little bit more. I've got a system right now where I, I can pretty much, I feel like, in a close quarters hunt film just about everything and actually make it look pretty decent without a camera arm. But I still may run one anyway just to get that additional footage. Yeah, it, it, like this year this year I hunted with a, uh, a GoPro for the first time. I've been, I've been hunting with a, a Sony action camera. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a GoPro this year. Uh, just to try out, and I, I actually use the uh, the hat clip uh, clips on the back of the hat or on, on the side of the of a hat. Yep. And uh, so I wear my hat backwards when I'm hunting with a, a trap bow. Anyway, so I, I clip it kind of over my over my left eyebrow. That way, so I actually made the mistake of shooting at a coyote one time, and the camera was dead center on my forehead, and yet totally it ripped the camera off my face. <laughs> it, broke the, it broke the camera mount that actually clips to the deal. Scared the mess out of me. <laughs> it was just this. It was like my bow. It felt like my bow broke. It was just a, a terrible commotion, and uh, I didn't know what happened until uh, I realized that the string had caught the GoPro and ripped it off my face. Um, so yeah, I put it over my left eyebrow <laughs> to keep that from happening. And uh, but I, and then I had my my camera arm in the back side of the tree, and uh, I killed a hog uh, this year, and I was actually able to get footage um, from both camera angles, and it was kind of. It was kind of cool uh, because it, it showed I, I had to maneuver. But I, I thought the hog was going to come on my left side. Well, last minute, the hogs, again, the wind was really bad swirly uh, in Louisiana, and he caught my wind, and he was exiting, uh, you know, stage left and, uh, and took off. I had to, I had to get over, get on the other side of my, my tether, and, uh, and the GoPro actually shows me picking my bow arm up uh, and going over the top of my, my tether and pivoting in my saddle uh, to be able to shoot the hog as he's leaving. And, uh, 
you know, if I had just had the camera arm, you wouldn't have seen, you wouldn't have been able to see how I maneuvered from one side of the tether to the other. And, uh, and it's just, I, I, I left that in there just to show, because I, I have had a lot of people asking, um, asking me about how I like the saddle or, uh, you know, how, how, how can you film with it? Can you shoot a trabo out of it? And, uh, anyway, I added, left that video, that clip, that footage in there, uh, just to help maybe, maybe show somebody that it, it's not, it's not terrible. Like you, you can make it, you can make it work and it's, it's really not hard to, to make it work, um, with the trad bow. But I do, I do like, um, I, I really enjoy filming my hunts. It's, it's cool being able to go back and look at the, look at your, uh, you know, your experiences over the years. It's, it's neat. <sighs> Yeah, definitely. That's, I mean, for me, like, there'll be even times, too, when I go back and and I have totally forgotten about certain details, whether it's of the hunt or whether it's of deer movement or activity or weather patterns that were very relevant to the hunt that I've since forgotten. And I go back and watch the videos again, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can yeah. still apply that. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I originally started doing it just because I wanted to share it with other people. You know, it's a lot easier... It, like it's one thing to tell somebody about your hunt but it's something else to say hey watch this check this out and uh and that was that was what was cool to me is being able to share you know the experience even if it was like a uh like a raccoon trying to climb down the tree that i'm already sitting in and us fighting for trunk space <laughs> you know situations like that yeah it's funny to it's funny to talk about but when you when you actually can see the coon and hear him hear him growling at you and stuff as he's trying to get by you uh like that stuff like that is the reason why i started filming and then it got to be just more of an addiction than anything is uh now if i can't film man uh it's i I get kind of frustrated if i wind up going out there i feel naked without my camera uh i mean now obviously if i if i get the opportunity and it's not on camera that something's gonna die i'm not i'm not gonna not shoot it because it's not on film but uh (laughs) You know, I, I, I do like to have my camera with me. See, I'm glad I never had that. I filmed one hunt my entire life. And that was the first deer I ever killed with an Osage Orange Shelf bow. Nice. I, I think I am the only person who has ever seen that hunt on video. <laughs> and I still have it somewhere in my house. I have no clue where it's at. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, one hunt, I was like, this is too much work, I'm done. Sold my camera, got rid of everything, I was like, nope. Yeah, it's a royal pain, man. What uh, what camera arm are you using? I have a fourth arrow base that I kind of customized. I put some aluminum plates. I basically swapped out all the steel on it and just used like, aircraft-grade aluminum to make it lighter. Um, so gotcha. I, I ended up taking that whole base and shoulder assembly and cutting the weight just about in half. Uh, and then I was just running that with the, the fourth arrow, the carbon arm or the stiff arm. I had one of each. And then I ended up making one that was kind of custom also out of aluminum. And I made the top arm just a few inches shorter than the bottom arm. Because when I was passing the camera arm with the saddle from one side of the bridge to the other, my shotgun mic yeah. would hit the trunk. So <clears throat> when I made that top arm a little bit shorter, that seemed to prevent that from happening. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I've had that issue with the camera arm. I've got... I've... I, I I saw the uh, the what is what is it fourth fourth arrow is that what it's called yeah yeah I, I saw I almost I saw that last year and I was like man that looks awesome but I just can't justify dropping the money on that <laughs> 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 and, uh, so I I'm using 
they they used to be made by Gorilla. I forget who makes them now. Uh, but it's a just you know one of those cheapo camera arms. But my lord, it thinks it adds like five pounds to your to your pack, and uh, just just the camera arm. And, uh, and I mean it, it works for what it is, but yeah, it's it is a pain, you know, trying to get it up there, ratchet it on there, get it in the right position. Uh, not to mention the actual headache of and, and stress of having a deer come in and trying to keep it on film, uh, trying not to spook it, trying to focus on you know the deer, your camera, uh, you know, all that kind of good stuff. It's it, it can be stressful and frustrating and all that kind of good stuff but when it when it works out man it's it's worth it <laughs> oh yeah i always say i don't blame anybody for not wanting to film hunts because it's you're, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna blow opportunities you're gonna miss miss uh miss shots that's, and yeah <laughs> that's exactly why i went to one of those as soon as i had a and it was on like it was like a, a coyote of all things like a, i was trying to film film a coyote uh that came in and uh i was gonna shoot it well he like he was trotting towards me and I set the camera up and got in position. Well, at the last second he went on the backside of the tree and I like grabbed the camera arm and I'm swinging it around and he just keeps on going. And I was like, you dummy, you just let a coyote go because you're worried about a camera. And, uh, I was like, that is the last thing you need to do. <laughs> and so I, I immediately went, uh, I got one of those action cameras. I was like, man, if I can't get it on my regular camera, I'm still going to get it on film, uh, whether it's a good quote-unquote quality or, or not. Uh, I'm still going to try to get the shot on film, even if I can't get it in my, you know, in the wheelhouse there. Uh, so I went and bought one of those, you know, point of view, point of view cameras, and uh, now, now it doesn't matter what side of the tree or or not that he goes on. I'm I'm flinging an arrow. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of my shots last year were only captured on the head cam, so definitely yeah. it definitely is valuable to have one of those, even if you are running the camera arm. For sure, I, uh, the one of the bucks I killed this past year, it was funny, uh, and I'm, I'm still a little bitter and frustrated about it. Uh, this, the deer, he caught me off guard, man. From the literally from the time I climbed in my tree to the time I had a dead deer was four minutes. Holy it was, smokes! It was insane. Um, like I found the scrape blind that morning, I picked the tree out, um, and then that evening I rushed, I rushed in, long story short, I got in the tree, I got tethered off, um, I hung my backpack, and it was the day before Thanksgiving, and, uh, uh, not Thanksgiving, the day before Halloween, and, uh, I, I grabbed some, uh, chocolate out of my, you know, as, for Halloween candy as I was leaving, and, uh, and I hung, I hung my bow, and I grabbed, I was like, I better eat this chocolate. Because it was like, you know, 88, 90 degrees, like right at 90 degrees. And, uh, and I was like, this chocolate's going to melt in my pocket if I don't if I don't eat it. So I'm literally, like, I just hung my bow in my backpack. And I grabbed this chocolate and I started eating it. And, uh, and I heard crunching. And, uh, and I, I clipped my, uh, my GoPro on, but I had not taken the time to put my camera arm up with my good camera yet. Uh, I, was, I was too worried about that chocolate. And, uh. So I was sitting up there munching on that like a fat kid, and uh, I heard crunching, and I look around the tree, and uh, there's a deer, like a really good buck walking towards me. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I, I reach up, and I, in my, my excitement, I punch my GoPro. I, I punch the power twice, and what that does is it turns it, like the way I have it set is when you punch it twice, it automatically puts it on uh, time lapse versus, you know, just filming. And oh. so I have, like, 
180 still sides of the entire process. <laughs> <laughs> like the deer walks out, he makes it like he, he goes to check the scrape, he stops and he starts making a scrape like six feet from the one that I was actually hunting on. And, uh, and you see like these still shots of the deer walking out. I'm coming to full draw. You see me at full draw with the deer down there. And then there's like a, a little bit of, a, of a, a blurry picture right when I release. Uh, you can see the, a, a very blurry image of the arrow leaving the bow. And then I actually wound up shooting the deer. Uh, it was I, I almost completely blew the situation, but I spined the deer and dropped him in his tracks. And so the next picture is that there's a white spot through the leaves where the, uh, the deer's belly is facing you. <laughs> but it's all like little bitty little bitty through the leaves uh whereas if it was that actual video footage you'd actually be able to see what's going on but with it being still shots you can barely tell anything that's going on <laughs> i'm still mad at myself about that <laughs> so uh, that's that's a that's a lesson learned on that one <laughs> yeah for me those are the those are the kind of lessons that i don't need to learn right <laughs> you just so assume like I, yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty fresh. I mean, it, it worked out. Uh, big picture, there's a there's a dead deer. Uh, you know, I, I got to experience that, but uh, there's just not a not a good film to go with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I tell you what, man. The um, I bought a camera this spring or winter, I guess, that has a mechanical gimbal built in, the Osmo Pocket, and I've been wearing that on a head mount. And like, oh, really, with, with a compound, it hasn't. Like, the footage is always pretty decent, but it seemed like with a compound, when I just have, like, a Sony or GoPro or whatever on the head mount. But it seemed like whenever I was shooting a traditional bow, like, just because there's more, I guess, more recoil generally for me after the shot. Um, right. It seems like shooting a, a trad bow with a head cam, it's not quite as, like, it's, it's not shaky, but it's also not as crisp as it could be. But I'm shooting with that Osmo camera in my head. It's like it's sitting on a tripod, like it's just crisp, and you can play it back in slow motion and just like watch that arrow go. It's it's pretty no impressive, way. yeah. I've never what, what's it called? Osmo Pocket. Os, Osmo Pocket. Yeah, I'll send you some. I'll send you some test footage after this, so you can take yeah, a look. I'm, I'm curious about that. Is it is it? It's sold like all in one piece, or you're buying just the the headgear and then the whatever camera you have goes with it, or is it like camera and everything included? It's like a. It's basically like a drone camera on a small stick, and it's got like a little, it's got like a little three-quarter inch or one-inch screen right on it with like two ba- two main buttons to do the controls. So there's like a power button, there's a record button, and then the rest of it's via touchscreen. So I had to build like a wow. mount for it, so I could put it on a head strap. But and it's not waterproof, and it's not as robust, and it takes a little bit longer to turn on. So it's not like it's the best in all categories, but for actually getting the shot filmed and make it look really nice, like I'll be pretty impressed. That is cool. You, you think there's? Is there any way you think you could? Uh, like, is it all all wired in together? Is there any way you could take the uh, the gimbal part of it and, and attach a, a GoPro or something or another another camera to it? With that one, you can't. But there's other small miniaturized gimbals um, that are made for like GoPros. Like there's ones that are made for chest mounts for like mountain bikers. I think Evo SS, and there's another one called Feutech. That make small little gimbals for that, but I mean they're more weight than you'd want to put on your head. Probably they're a little bit yeah. on the heavier side. But this one's pretty light. It's maybe Very like cool. seven, I would yeah, say it's I've, less than ten ounces. Honestly, never thought about that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because that's always that's always one of those. It's a little frustrating. Like you said, it doesn't matter. The the GoPro is obviously better than the 
when I say obviously, it's better than my, I have an old Sony action camera and then I have a GoPro, I, I think it's a Hero 5. Um, and uh, obviously there's, um, what's it called? The, the I want to say shock absorption, but that's not it. Stabilization. Yeah. Uh, it has the stabilization on there um, with the GoPro that the Sony doesn't. So uh, the Sony footage on the shot uh, is really blurry. And uh, GoPro footage is a, a lot more smooth, but you still get a little vibration, a little bit of blur uh, when you try to back it up. Yeah, the Sony X3000 has really good image stabilization, which I think might be a model newer than what you had. Um, but then the, like the GoPro 7, like the most recent one that they've made, that one has really good electronic stabilization too. Huh, interesting. But it's not as good in low light, interestingly. Really? Yeah. See, that was... That was why I originally went with the uh, the Sony action camera. Um, at the time, I forget which GoPro Hero was out, but they were one at the time. They were having a lot of bugs, like there were quite a few little glitches, and uh, uh, one of them was the fact that you couldn't make it uh, sound. Uh, you couldn't turn the sound off of it. Like there was always a beep oh, yeah. uh, when when I bought it, and then uh, when you looked at the footage side by side. Uh, the Sony Action camera was uh, way better in low light, like in trees. Um, it was much better in low light than the GoPro, um, where uh, the problem with it is in daylight, like in a field scenario, uh, the Sony overexposed really bad because of the pre-settings in there. Um, and now the, the GoPro I have now, it works pretty good because you, know, you can control the settings uh, from the app on your phone. Uh, so in low light, I'll start playing with the uh, ISO and uh, you know the aperture, all that kind of stuff on the GoPro, and I can I can brighten it up as it starts getting lower light, and uh, I can get more get more um, light out of the out of filming with the GoPro now than what I can could with the uh, the action camera that I had. Uh, but like I said, I had I had one of the oldest one of the older action cameras when they first came out. Yeah, they definitely made improvements across the board. Although I will say for for, sure. for low light, it's like an action camera, no matter how good it is, still is not great in low lights, like no matter what. Um, but there is, so there's a camera called the Psyonics, which actually it's kind of, it's kind of billed as like a night vision camera. Um, but it's not too much heavier than, I think what it'd be like maybe most similar to. It's probably twice the weight of a GoPro, I'd say, but it's still small enough that you could wear it on like a head strap. And it films in 720, so the resolution isn't like fantastic, not like 4K resolution or anything like that. But the yeah. the low light is otherworldly. It's like you can see much better through the camera than you can just with your naked eye. Wow, that's cool. It's, it's crazy. It, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's mind blowing. Look at some of the test footage that he sent me on that. It's just like okay. I, I've shot some. <laughs> I've shot some targets with a lighted knock, like dark enough where. I have to like really strain to make sure I'm not going to miss the target. And I play that, I play that footage back and you shoot it and the lighted knock hits the target and the lighted knock like glows the ground around it because it's, it's almost like a, acting like a flashlight and the camera's just able to pick up all that extra light. Wow. That is insane. That, that's one of the biggest frustrations is low light uh, with the camera. And you know, cause it, in most scenarios, once the camera's like the camera's done, but you can still hunt for, you know, depending on where you're at, sometimes 20 minutes. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, even even though the camera's out, and that, like, prime time, uh, especially, like, uh, when I went bear hunting a couple of years ago, uh, it stays late 
uh, like the twilight hour uh, in Idaho is crazy. Like in northern Idaho is like crazy long compared to down here. So like I'd lose camera light really early, and I'm like, man, this is like <laughs> I still have 30, 40 minutes for bears to move, and I can't even film. And uh, so that's that's kind of frustrating. Uh, no scenarios, but uh, I'm I am glad that the the technology is coming along. Not that they're designing technology for uh people who want to film their hunts but uh it would be nice (laughs) oh yeah i can think of a lot of features and you know good things from various individual cameras if you could somehow figure out a way to combine it all into one package you'd actually have something pretty good yeah and the problem is there's no there's no middle ground it's either you know a, a cheap version uh that has almost everything or uh over the top professional one that's got more than you could ever want uh you know twenty thousand dollars and uh thirty pounds type scenario right <laughs> so bobby what camera do you use i don't use one anymore that went away a long <laughs> I time I'm ago so, <laughs> i'm talking i think off. it was uh man I, I, I just didn't want you to feel feel left out of this conversation <laughs> yeah it was it was from campbell cameras i don't even know i don't know if they're still around but it was man i don't even remember what it was now but it took a little uh Mini, mini VHS tape at the time. <laughs> oh, that's how long ago that, that is. Was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I've, I've got a, uh, we used to have one of those cameras. Me and my brother, we, we'd film each other. Uh, we've got several old, uh, old deer hunts and like my first turkey hunt, his first turkey hunt is filmed on those little cameras. And now, now there's absolutely nothing that we can play any of that footage on. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that's, I don't. I don't even. I couldn't tell you where that camera, where that that footage is. Anyway, I'm sure it's tucked away somewhere in my parents' attic. <clears throat> you guys are crazy. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun though. So, do uh, Bobby? Do you do you work for um, Arrow Hunter? Like, do you do you help manufacture the saddles? Like, what's mm. what's your story on that? No. So I'm basically just a product design consultant. Gotcha. Okay, that's uh, what I was thinking. I couldn't remember. Yeah. So I don't. I don't actually work for the company. I just help them design it. That's kind of the way everything fell together. Is you know they just reached out and was like, hey, you want to help us design this? And so spent some years working with them and their sewers to to get it sewed up. And you can see the progression through the different models. Was obviously they're a tree climbing company, so they wanted all the tree climbing stuff built into it, and they were not hunters, so they couldn't understand how we used it so much differently than they did right and so that's what took so long for the evolution of it to to go through from the original arrow hunter to the evolution to the kestrel to the kite very nice yeah i was i was curious about that when um when i got like i said i was interested in them a long time ago uh, but i i just I, I kept putting it off um and something i forget what it was i saw something and i was spark spark the interest again and i started doing a bunch of digging and uh that's when i found the arrow hunter the uh the kestrel and uh when i found it 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 had just just come out uh just it was one of those deals i think where you pre-order maybe and uh and i ordered one uh one of those right right after they first come out i think um i might have thought that they had first come out but it's probably i just found them but (laughs) uh but that, that was the one I originally got. And I almost I almost went and got the kite. And I'm like, you know what? I, I can't justify that. Like, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a substantial weight 
weight difference, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, this Kestrel's working great for me. Uh, it's comfortable. I, I, I really don't have any complaints with it at all. Yeah, it's good. It's, that's the thing is the kite's just a, a slimmed-down version of the Kestrel, basically. It's the same same design, same function, just a lighter weight mesh. A lot of people wanted it. You know, to me, I think I've hunted out of a kite like 10 times. Outside of that, I, hunt, I still have my the first actual Kestrel that I hunt from that was, I don't know how, even how many years old it is now. Um, and I, I, it's what it was all built off of, and for me, it works great, so... Yeah, that sounds like me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a if it's not broke, don't fix it guy. Yeah, just, uh, just buy I, two I of have, them. There was a guy that I forget who he was, but he he used both, or he had the Kestrel. He ordered the kite, and after he got the kite, he was like, "Man, the Kestrel was just more comfortable to me." Like I, he thought the mesh was going to be more comfortable, and for whatever reason, he he wound up liking the the full fabric. Uh, feel better and uh, and wind up selling us kite. Yeah, I thought I, that was interesting. If I remember right, they sell kestrels to kites. It's like four to one or five to one kestrels over kites. Really? So yeah. Wow. I, I would think the opposite. Yeah, you you would think the opposite, but they the kestrels by far the number one seller has always and is always. When we first released it, I think they had. They put it on the website, and it wasn't even completely done. And I think they had something like 150 orders in the first two and a half hours. Like, people wow. were typing in the comments what they wanted, like, color-wise and all that, because they didn't even have it on the website yet. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Good truth. Jared, is that what you use? Are you using the Kestrel? I got, like, one of everything. So I like, to, I like to try to hunt out of, like, pretty much every saddle option at least a little bit throughout the season just because like it's honestly like two during the hunting season is like two or three times a week sometimes more that i'll get questions about you know x y or z saddle so i like to have yeah. at least a little bit of background about you know kind of all of them right yeah i i, I get asked this, a lot of the same stuff and i'm like well i can I can tell you opinions based on what I've read on these two, but uh, I can, only one I can really tell you about is the Kestrel. But <laughs> um, I, I do have a uh, I do have a tethered platform that the Mantis I think no Predator is it the Predator yeah Predator um, I have that platform um, at the time I don't I don't know if Arrow Hunter even makes a platform now uh, whether they do or not it, they they didn't or I didn't see it when I I got the uh, the saddle originally um but again that was one of those things when i when i realized i wanted a platform that they were the ones that had had it so yeah i mean Uh, that's still pretty much the one i run exclusively is that that predator do what i said the that predator platform is pretty much the the option that i run exclusively no matter what saddle i'm using yeah the thing is awesome it's super lightweight i I like how uh, compact it is good stuff cool man well I think this is a pretty good conversation. There's a lot of good info in this. I enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. So before we before we jump off here, tell people where they can find you and um, kind of where they can look at your just beyond amazing taxidermy work as well. <laughs> I don't know about all that, but thank you. Oh, come on now. <laughs> um, I, well, uh, I've got a Instagram page uh, for my bow hunting uh, endeavors. Um, it's Bayou Bow Hunter. 
Uh, along with that, I have a YouTube channel, uh, Bayou Bowhunter, um, and Facebook page, Bayou Bowhunter. Uh, Facebook and Instagram page are kind of tied together, but I, I do put more on Instagram. It's just easier to load a quick picture and run, uh, run with it. Um, videos, obviously, on Bayou Bowhunter. My taxidermy uh, is New Life Taxidermy is the name of my business. Um, my Instagram uh, name uh, for the taxidermy is New Life Taxidermy. Imagine that. And uh, <laughs> my Facebook page is uh, Carson's New Life Taxidermy uh, because there was actually another New Life Taxidermy, and I think it was in North Carolina or Wisconsin. It was somewhere in the Northeast. Um, but uh, so I had to I had to use Carson's New Life Taxidermy on Facebook. But um, yeah, that's that's my info, and uh, I get I get asked info uh, probably as much. You know, I'm sure y'all get asked a lot more than what I do. Um, y'all are y'all are out there a good bit more, but um, you know, I, I I do. I try to respond as much as I can. Um, I get asked bow tuning questions, archery, taxidermy, like all kinds of questions, and uh, I don't I don't mind responding. So if anybody has any questions, uh, feel free to message me on any of that. I I do. Um, I, I enjoy trying to help people because I didn't I didn't have the help when I was learning, uh, especially with a traditional bow. And if I could help shorten somebody else's learning curve, I would. Uh, I'd love to be able to help somebody uh, figure it out and enjoy the frustrations with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I appreciate y'all having me on. I've had a I've, I've had a, a good time. It's it's been a good conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yes, sir. As always, make sure to follow and like the Sports Position Podcast Network on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you typically download to listen to your podcast. Leave us a review. Continue to send in questions. And thanks for listening.